Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? I am doing great because we have Dr. Gabe Filippelli here to talk to us about how roots, yes, plant roots, set in motion a major mass extinction event across the globe during the Devonian period. This has a lot to do with geology and chemistry, especially as it relates to oceans and algae. And as you're going to hear and understand, there's a lot of corollaries today in places like the Gulf of Mexico or wherever else we have dead zones. I'm going to let Dr. Filippelli do this topic the justice it deserves. But before we get to that, I just want to say, if you want to buy a copy of my book for 30% off, head on over to mango.bz where you can pick up my book as well as all of the other titles over there for 30% off until January 2023. We also have new merch for sale, including hats and beanies, so go check that out. All of those links are in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. But that is enough for me. Let's get on with the show. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Filippelli. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Gabe Filippelli, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I am super excited to talk to you about your work today, but first, let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Yeah, no, I, I'm happy to be here too. I'm Gabe Filippelli. I'm a professor of earth sciences at Indiana University. I'm also the executive director of the Indiana University Environmental Resilience Institute. It's very exciting stuff and really important work that you do, but what brought you to this line of work? I mean, were you geology oriented, more biosphere oriented? Where did it all begin? So I definitely started as a geologist. That was my undergraduate degree uh, at University of California, Davis. And from that experience, though, I really got a, uh, a real sort of inspiration to look at, at what the, the past oceans were like. Hmm. So although, you know, some geologists look at you know, rocks and volcanoes and, and those kinds of things, which are all fascinating. I uh, got an early interest in the oceans and how, how you can tell what the past climate was from looking at the oceans, frankly. Yeah, really important work. And I mean, you've got a lot of ocean history to work with here. I mean, arguably, that's probably one of the most important histories on this planet, especially as life is concerned. But the reason we connected today was sort of a larger look at oceans, extinction events, and how plants may be involved in that, or at least historically have. So where did that line of investigation begin for you? Well, it's really strange, Matt. I, I had been looking at uh, a, a concept, well, actually a process called the phosphorus cycle. So mm -hmm. phosphorus, most people don't even know what the heck it is, <laughs> um, unless you're like a gardener, and then you know you have to have a certain ratio of phosphorus and nitrogen and potassium to make your plants grow well. Sure. And, and you can even have tests to see whether your garden has enough phosphorus. Well, it ends up that phosphorus is the most critical plant nutrient on the planet. Hmm. And so I use that simple fact and went back through through time to try to see what is the the phosphorus chemistry in the ocean telling us about maybe how phosphorus is delivered from land to the ocean. It, en it ends up being one of these very critical limiting nutrients. So that got me inspired to look at phosphorus in many different dimensions. 
Exciting, yeah. And I am very fortunate to have been in a lab that studied phosphorus cycling on more modern, smaller timescales than what you're used to looking at. But when you say major limiting and, and important, I mean, it's like you said, if you're a gardener, you understand it. But when you try to connect the world of terrestrial land plants and life in the ocean, why does phosphorus become the one that really stands out to you? Yeah, it's kind of strange because there's in your fertilizer bag, there's three nutrients listed phosphorus, nitrogen, and potassium. And it ends up that of those three, it's phosphorus is the one with the most limited mobility of all of the nutrients. So it's, it's odd to think about, but you know, the air you're breathing right now and that I'm breathing and all the listeners are breathing is 80% nitrogen gas, <laughs> right? We, we don't notice because we only care about the oxygen part of it, but it ends up that, um, that plants and ecosystems in the ocean on land can can actually uh, rely on that a little bit of uh, nitrogen supply from the atmosphere to feed themselves. Mm -hmm. It's a slow process, but they can rely on it. Similarly, potassium is very plentiful in rocks. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's a pretty common common element. It's the phosphorus, on the other hand. There's none of it in the air. There's very little of it in rocks, which means that ultimately, for ecosystems in the ocean and on land, it ends up to being the the ultimate limiter right it's it's the speed limit for how well an ecosystem can can survive or uh you know or even proliferate and so that's why i've really been laser focused on phosphorus it's a really fascinating approach and i enjoyed the deep dive i took on on your work with that because you think of the time scales that you're working with and just the vast space i mean oceans are not small things by their very nature and they've been larger they've been smaller but they're still huge and it, it just it's remarkable to think about the role this molecule can actually play in the big picture of things. And and to be able to look at that through time is even more exciting because the past really does infer the future. And what's going on today probably was, you know, based on the laws of physics and chemistry, much the same as it was back then and will be tomorrow. That's right. And it's really weird to think of something like phosphorus or um, we think of it as the phosphate ion, right? It's mm -hmm. just phosphorus with some oxygen stuck onto it. It has a similar role on our planet as as carbon dioxide, which people are quite familiar with the fact that it's modulated, it's affected climate in the past uh, before human beings were around. But now human beings have supercharged the carbon system. So by emitting so much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, we're causing global warming or climate change, right? Similar way that we are actually supercharging the phosphate cycle right now through our own activities. For example, as you reference, uh, fertilizing farm fields here in the Midwestern part of the U.S. And a lot of that phosphate, or I shouldn't say a lot, some of it leaks off of farm fields, ends up in the Gulf of Mexico and causes these super fueled algal events, algal mm -hmm. blooms, which choke off any other kind of life in the Gulf of Mexico. So uh, phosphorus even plays a role today uh, in, in our current uh, kind of what we call anthropogenic activities. So just to clarify, when someone talks about a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, phosphorus can be one of the ways that that occurs, or at least the catalyst that kicks off the, the inevitable lack of oxygen in dead zones that we end up seeing and, and paying for. It, indeed. Um, the phosphorus causes these these blooms of algae, which are, you know, are life, but they, they suck off out all of the oxygen from the water. And mm. so you imagine if you're, 
if you're an algal, uh, algal body, algal mass doesn't really matter so much. You are fueled by sunlight. Um, but if you're a shrimp or a mm. fish and you are now without oxygen, um, <laughs> you are in, in dire straits. So you have to move elsewhere. And, and so this is why the, the Gulf of Mexico dead zone, which is from leaking phosphorus from the Midwest, uh, does have really significant economic impacts, right? You lose um, shrimp fisheries and, and other fisheries. Right, right. And so before we kind of jump into the mechanism that really connected us today, uh, when you think about what it's doing, how, how you actually go about studying not only phosphorus today, but in the past, I mean, I can understand grabbing a soil sample or grabbing a water sample and running it through equipment and getting a result out the other end. How do you study phosphorus levels in the past, especially oceans where, you know, there might not be oceans today or, or even if there are, how do you go back in time and understand phosphorus and its links hundreds, thousands, millions of years ago? That's a great question. If you don't mind being patient for a while, I'm oh, going to yeah, take a second and unspool us <laughs> back into 373 million years please of Earth history. Do. Um, it is. So I have focused a lot on phosphorus in recent time scales. So I've looked at um, lake sediments mm. uh, that have experienced various climatic cycles. You know, we have these intermittent ice ages, right? Um, and, and, in, during those periods, you can actually measure the amount of phosphorus that was delivered to lakes using something called sediment core. So you just go to the middle of a lake and punch a core down into it. Nice. You age date the core and then voila, you know that it's like a tree ring punching a, a, a hole into a, into a tree. Um, you can tell the past history of the growth of the tree. Hmm. Same thing for lakes sediments. It's, it works the same way. Okay. And then you can measure carefully the phosphorus chemistry through time, right? So I did that, and I've done that through uh, through various uh, ice age intervals. But I also apply that to the ocean. Same concept applies. Hmm. You take cores into the ocean, and you can measure how much phosphorus is affecting uh, affecting ocean life in the past, hmm. like let's say the last 10 million years. So I, I went from ice ages the last hundred thousand years to the last 10 million years. Okay. And so why not go back 373 million years ago? Yeah. Where instead of, yes, you're exactly right. There's not oceans that our current oceans are not configured the way they were then, but there's certainly still remnants of ocean floors, ocean sediments. This is where we, you know, in the Midwest, you see a lot of fossils, for example, mm. from, Oceans that were long extinct 400 million years ago, but now they're rock deposits. We use the same concept to look at ancient uh, ancient oceans, and we extrapolate, we explore the chemistry of those ancient oceans. I love that because I grew up being a total nut for fossil hunting. I love finding ancient clues to what was once here. And it's so interesting to think that you can do that with chemistry. You know, there's this fossilized chemistry out there, for lack of a better word, I guess. I don't know how accurate that is, but... Yeah, I mean, to be able to go back in time really reveals a lot. And if you know what you're looking for, again, applying modern day chemistry and physics to things, you can get a deeper understanding. But I think it probably stands to reason uh, that the world was a vastly different place 340 some odd million years ago. And so even though chemistry and physics hasn't changed, life has changed. And that has a major impact on how phosphorus moves through, I guess, an ecosystem or at least the cycling of it. Yeah. So and then this, in fact, was the first inspiration to do this this study that we're going to be talking about a little bit more. The first inspiration was uh, when we when we look at lake sediments, lake core sediments, going from the time when we had ice ages, right, 
Mm-hmm. So let's say 20,000 years ago, much of the Midwestern U.S. was covered by a thick ice sheet. It retreated. Uh, the ice sheet retreated as the planet warmed. This is our, these are natural climate cycles. And so then an entire landscape that was trapped underneath the ice uh, emerged. So you imagine you have bare rocks, right? The ice shaved off all of the soil. You have bare rocks. And much like if you go to Hawaii and look at lava flows, and as you look at older lava flows, they're not just rock, they're soil, they're plants. You know, plants are, are powerful agents of change. And yeah. so even here in the Midwest, you lose that, that, that the, the ice cover and the, the rock now starts in, starts becoming alive, right? You get plants that seed there, you get soils that develop there. What we noticed was something really unique. During that time when the soils developed, uh, you got an incredible loss of the element phosphorus. So, hmm. uh, you know, the rock has a, has a fair amount of phosphorus. Um, as over the couple thousand years as the soil developed, you lose a ton of that phosphorus. You can see it in the lake sediments, like, which makes sense because the ecosystem is kind of in a world of riches, right? It doesn't <laughs> need, right? It, it, it's being fed by all these fresh rocks and it doesn't need to start preserving things. But once soil starts forming, hmm. You develop these recycling systems in soil, and then the phosphorus loss gets shut off. The, the soils get super efficient at trapping every bit of this nutrient it possibly can so that it can sustain plants, right? Which makes sense. Sure. So we use that same lens. I thought, well, what in the world happened then when plants 370 million years ago learned how to make roots? <laughs> Basically. Yeah. Right? Yeah. When the first soil emerged on our planet, what in the world happened then? So that, that was the, the basis of a lot of their, our, our, our ancient studies. That's an exciting leap because if you don't think in deep time perspectives, you kind of take for granted that the soil that's out there today probably was there. But no, there was a time period where there was no organic soil. It just couldn't have formed. And then the slow buildup, what did that look like and how did it change? And to be able to explore that through this sort of fossilized chemistry is super exciting. And so... You've mentioned sort of relatively recent examples of this and what, what you expect to see. How did you start to pick apart, A, the time frame you wanted to look at, but then again, where you wanted to look at? Because the continents aren't even the same positions today. How do you go looking for this uh, evidence, I guess, first? Yeah, no, the continents are completely different. The ocean basins are not there anymore that we studied. You know, the even the largest ocean on the planet, uh, the the Pacific Ocean is only 180 million years old. Oh, what I know one. only seems. Um, <laughs> it's so young. <laughs> yeah, it seems very, but for geologists, it's pretty young. Sure. Right? Um, and so we're talking about a time frame before even any of our modern oceans uh, were in the configuration they're in. But we had plenty of oceans. We've had oceans for 4.2 billion years, for goodness <laughs> sake. So we've always had that. So. What I was curious about is that uh, there were some ideas that went around about what caused this massive mass extinction event that occurred uh, about 370 million years ago. Hmm. You know, many of our mass extinction events occur because of large volcanic eruptions or the most recent one that killed off the dinosaurs was likely a massive asteroid impact, plus probably some volcanic influences. But this time... The, the, the age period is called the Devonian period, mm-hmm. uh, by the way, this 370 million years ago event. This time 
seemed pretty boring. Otherwise, <laughs> there didn't seem to be substantial volcanic inputs. There's no massive meteorite that hit the planet. So why in the world did 70% of all marine organisms die wow. over this period? So that's exactly the issue that we explored. Um, it's been explored before, and, and there's been some suppositions that, hey, we think it died because the whole ocean became uh, de devoid of oxygen, or at least large parts of the ocean, hmm. maybe not the entire ocean. And, and the idea is like much like the Gulf of Mexico is suffering from these dead zones from the leakage of phosphorus, maybe the fact that roots started evolving at that time and mass extinctions in the ocean occurred at that time, maybe it's not a coincidence. So it was kind of this detective work where you had different lines of evidence. Something was going on. We lost life. We don't have major celestial or volcanic activity. You start chipping away at those checks. Okay, this checks out. This checks out. And it sounds like you almost have to take a lot of different, even within geology, a lot of different disciplines uh, worth of evidence to come together and say, we might be onto something here. That's right. Yeah, it doesn't. So although I'm, I'm a geochemist, you know, I listen to paleontologists. <laughs> I listen to volcanologists to hear what their ideas were about what's going on at this time. So so there was this hypothesis out there. So a hypothesis is an idea that's not been well tested. Mm -hmm. Right. But it's a provocative idea based on a couple uh, lines of evidence that we have a mass extinction. Trees, and I'd be happy to, to go into this a little bit more. Sure. Trees figure out how to make roots at about this time. Could they be related, much like the Gulf of Mexico dead zone? And so I apply the same techniques that I use now on lake sediments, modern lake sediments, meaning I take cores of lake sediments and explore how did, what are we seeing in terms of changes in, in phosphorus cycle during this time? I did the same thing in the deep past. Uh, it ends up that you're right. There's no oceans, current oceans <laughs> to take cores from anymore, but there are rocks. Mm. And these rocks are prevalent throughout an area that is spans from New York State through Scotland and the Svalbard Islands, Russia and China. These all of these continents used to be together 370 million years ago. And through the, you know, the wonders of plate tectonics, they started splitting at that time, meaning that the edges of all of those land masses had vast lake deposits as water was rushing to the ocean. It, you know, just like today, sometimes it sticks in lakes for a little while. And so we use those lake records, which are now on rock outcrops, to <laughs> do our work on. That is exciting detective work. I love that. And especially, you know, growing up in New York, these are some of the rock beds I'm familiar with. But you keep mentioning roots and roots. It's another thing we kind of take for granted. Plants didn't always have them. The first land invaders, so to speak, didn't have roots, but something happened. Roots were genetically invented. How are roots involved in all of this? How do you go from phosphorus in the rock to phosphorus in the ocean and mass extinctions? How do roots factor into this? Well, that's exactly the question we were trying to answer. Fortunately, a lot of people had already done a lot of the, um, <laughs> the groundwork for nice. this. So we relied on colleagues uh, who have already been chiseling away at this problem. Um, it, so it, if you went back to our planet, if you had your time machine, right, and you set it for, let's say, 380 million years ago, mm. 
right? And all of a sudden, um, boom, you're there. Um, first of all, you'd probably die of some virus that um, we don't, <laughs> you know, we're not used to. But, not another. <laughs> yes. It's like a proto-COVID. Oh, God. It, <laughs> if you surrounded yourself in a bubble somehow, sure. <laughs> uh, you, you, what you would look across on the landscape is much like you see in uh, in humid, cool tropic, uh, humid, cool environments, which is like uh, vast areas of moss and lichen and mm. super low plants, like mm. low stature plants. Right. So these these are these are organ. There's plants around back then. They they had no problem living there because we already had a pretty functioning biosphere. Hmm. But they lived in this thin little layer, so that you know you've probably seen moss and lichen and so forth. They they do dissolve rock a little bit, but only down to a couple centimeters, frankly. Sure. They're like this very surface phenomenon. Uh, but imagine that you're an organism that... So at that point, when everything was flat, they depended on receiving sunlight only from one dimension. So <laughs> it's going to take a little while to explain this, but right, you're flat, you get sunlight. Um, if you grow bigger, you get more sunlight. If you grow smaller, you get less sunlight in terms of the, your, your uh, horizontal speed. Mm. But imagine if you are the first plant that started developing a weird mutation where you grew a little bit tall. Mm. Let's say you grew to be a foot tall. Um, all of a sudden, you have now broached, breached the third dimension of sunlight. So now you don't have to rely on competing with this horizontal area, you're a vertical organism. Hmm. So you can capture a sunlight before it even hits the ground, right? You're, you're trapping it as you're growing up. And all of a sudden you're getting a ton more energy than all your other, you know, poor old, you know, flat lying <laughs> friends. And so that trait, that mutation continues on, right? Cause it means you survive as an organism. And so you make more of you, right? But the, the trick is, if you grow to be a foot tall or 10 feet tall, um, if a big wind comes up and you don't have any roots, guess what? You get knocked straight down. <laughs> yep. Not only that, but your growth demands are more. So you actually start evolving this parallel world, the parallel invisible world in the subsurface, which is your anchor. Um, it's also your nutrient supply and your water supply. Uh, because your needs are a little bit greater than the, than the moss that, that you just are trying to supplant as an ecosystem. Right. So th that's how roots formed. It was just simply the normal, um, you know, survival of the fittest. In this case, plants learned to, to extract the, the third dimension of life, which is the, you know, the sun trapping dimension. But as a consequence, they did need to have roots. And so they biochemically formed a new set of compounds which made organic matter stiff. They're called lignans hmm. or waxes and other things, which is a, a, a revolution at the time. Uh, but it was for a plant that survived. It wasn't a revolution. They're just doing what, you know, they were passing sure. down. Their <laughs> but yeah, now you can see this sort of scenario where instead of life interacting with a few centimeters of mineral soils, now you've got something penetrating much deeper maybe a few inches or even a couple of feet. But at the same time, the growth habits are changing. They need more energy. They're getting more energy. And it's not like phosphorus was this new thing that suddenly became available. They were using it. It's just biomass goes up. And that, to me, sounds like a great phosphorus concentrating mechanism. Yeah. 
Yeah, in fact, that's exactly what happened. These trees, these massive forests evolved. But remember way back to when I discussed what happened when the ice sheets retreated from landscapes and plants first started recolonizing land. Right. Um, it wasn't all that novel, you know, 10,000 years ago because there's been plants, you know, tree root trees <laughs> sure. uh, since 370 million years ago. But when that happened, the landscape inadvertently leaked a ton of phosphorus off of it before it before it really developed a mature soil. Hmm. So what we found was a very similar process. When these trees evolved roots, uh, their forests started expanding. Well, the soil that they started beginning to form all by themselves was extremely leaky for phosphorus. So hmm. it ends up that the landscape lost a ton of phosphorus uh, as these soils took hold. Um, but huh. The, the, the biggest thing we found, yeah, so anyway, they, they were a very leaky, leaky e ecosystem until they stabilized. Uh, but we also took advantage of our paleontology friends who mentioned that these forests didn't evolve only one time. They kept expanding and contracting and reinventing themselves, and they're affected by climate change such that they kept recolonizing uh, areas of the landscape and again, continued to leak phosphorus out from the landscape as they did their normal work, right? They're just developing yeah. soils and, and living. So it was what we found from the, from the, the, the geological record is that we had this repeated leakage that was unlike anything we see in modern times. Modern time, we've had soil now ever since the, since trees learned how to make roots. <laughs> we've had, Soils that are only perturbed a little bit by ice age variations or when a volcanic eruption goes off. Uh, but at that time, it was a revolution in soil and in, and in plants. So we found a, it's probably about 10 million years where we had this repeated leakage events uh, of phosphorus. I mean, it makes sense. People can kind of do a version of this in their own home. Grab a tea bag and put rocks in it and dunk it in some water. You're not going to see much. You take a bunch of hummus from the soil out back put it in a tea bag, you're going to leach that all out. And that's what was happening over millions of years over vast continental scales. Now you can kind of start to see, ooh, that might have an impact on the oceans and the life living in it, right? Indeed. And it answered the, the, the problem that wasn't solved. So when people originally proposed this fact that the, the plant roots might have caused a leak of phosphorus in the ocean and a mass extinction, they didn't address one of the critical problems with that idea, which is that phosphorus doesn't survive in the ocean that long. It gets used by plants like crazy and it's gone. So uh, there was a, I call it the, the roots, on, roots off, roots on hypothesis, which is there's no roots and all of a sudden there's roots and then you cause a 10 million year long mass extinction. Well, <laughs> that can't work that way. Phosphorus only lasts for 10 to 50,000 years in the ocean. Oh, wow. So the idea is that what we found is this repeated dosing of the ocean mm. with this nutrient is what probably, and the oceans were already almost poised to be devoid of oxygen, or we call it anoxic in the field. So they're almost ready to be, be uh, anoxic. Well, this just tipped them all the way over the edge. And it, and it didn't just cause um, a, a mass extinction. It also caused a significant change in climate. Uh, because of the amount of, of of carbon that was buried because you had so much extra nutrients in the ocean. Oh, wow. So the whole uh, uh, the, the, the 
climate got cooler. And so that didn't help things, right? Wow. So it's this cascading effect. You have this roots on, roots off, 10 million years of just this unstable environment of being choked out, coming back, choked out, coming back. Then you have all the life that's actually benefiting from this, pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, making themselves, but then dying and bringing it down. Man, it is wild to think of like setting this off and then just seeing how chemistry basically happens over <laughs> tens of millions of years, but still uh, yeah. uh, this unintended, so to speak, if there was everything approaching intent uh, consequence of really just fueling one type of life and and the world's affected as a result. That's whew. yeah. What, what I think is, yeah, that's exactly right. And what I think is just fascinating is to think that a lot of processes in, in, on, on the earth, uh, climate change and earth systems, they're cyclical, right? Right. Um, we get warmer, we get colder. Obviously, um, right now we're getting warmer, but that's because of people, right? Our emissions of carbon dioxide. But, you know, th that also happened naturally, just not to the to the extreme that we're taking it. But um, it but this is one of these examples of a time where the world forever change, right? Mm -hmm. We went from no roots <laughs> being on any plant on the entire planet to roots always being on plants yeah. in the entire planet, uh, which is mind-blowing because now you went from a world where soils, as you mentioned, were this thin veneer um, on top of rocks, and now soils are you know, a, a meter deep, uh, 100 meters deep in the Amazon. Um, you know, they're, they're these deep systems, uh, and we're never going to get out of that again. Right? Yeah. We're always going to have roots. And, you know, for those that think like the world's a vast place, physics is never going to change. You know, you can't really enact things. I mean, here's a great example of life really setting the stage for, like you said, never turning back. There was never a reset button bar complete extinction, which doesn't happen uh, or hasn't happened, thankfully. And and here's where the, you know, we're a logical, not end result, but a result of how much has changed in that time. I mean, just think of how much roots change things, let alone the nutrient cycles that had to change or changed as a product of these evolutionary adaptations. Exactly. It's, it's similar to when, uh, so we had a couple events through earth history like that, right? That the, we probably had a million experiments into making a multicellular organism in the ocean, right? Uh, until finally, uh, and a million that went wrong, right? Uh, you know, until finally, boom, you had that first, uh, little cell, little bacteria in, uh, infecting an archaea uh, bacteria and making a multicellular organism. Uh, similarly, you had the evolution of animals. You, some of these things you can't come back from, and uh, tree roots are one of them. <laughs> so, and, and it's really weird to think that everything, when you look outside your house, when you walk to work or school or drive, all you're seeing around you is soil. Right. Right. That is what we see, unless you happen to live in the Rockies or you live next to, next to mountains, uh, you're seeing soils because now our landscape is completely a soiled landscape. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of times people want to add value judgments to these sorts of things. But, you know, the plants had no agency in this. They just it's what worked and it changed everything. And the things that were around prior to that adjusted, evolved and moved on or went extinct. And what's always kind of quirky about these these massive findings these really fun publications is that it's just it is what it is it's geology it's deep time things are wild and and you get a i guess a deeper perspective and understanding about 
how this thing plays out over time and sort of the Rube Goldberg that is evolution in life in the biosphere. It's it's those are just fun little things to kind of like tease around. Indeed. I mean, I think people think, oh, well, we're an, an ever advancing planet. We're getting ever more involved. No, it's just dumb luck, frankly. <laughs> um, and yeah, when we're seeing dumb luck all around us uh, uh, and and sometimes things things evolve and they stick with us and there might, might, might not even that be that great. For example, uh, photo, uh, photosynthesis via chlorophyll, it's actually not that efficient. Right. Um, yet we've been stuck with it for, you know, 3.8 billion years because it kind of worked. Right. It's like my grandpa used to say, if it ain't broke, don't <laughs> fix it. And this, yeah, I think biology is the same thing. Well, it, it works okay. Yeah. Yeah. But obviously your work, has you just as much in modern times as it does in the deep past of this planet. And there's a lot of lessons to be learned there. And, you know, when people talk about the, the it's always changed, it gets warm, it gets cold, whatever. You have studied a process here that was massive. It caused extinctions over 10 million or so odd years, millions of years. You can't really compare that rate of change to what we have done to this planet in 150 years. It's, it's vastly different what we are doing compared to what, deep time and quote-unquote natural processes have done historically. And you nailed it. It's the rate of change, right? There, there have been organisms that have, uh, have transformed the planet in the past. Uh, cyanobacteria, so the first algae that pumped out oxygen, they did it for about a half a billion years, and all of that oxygen was, was um, grabbed away through, the, through iron minerals, ending up rusting the planet. Finally, they had rusted enough that oxygen began to accumulate. So our first oxygen events at 2.2 billion years ago, uh, you know, they were the result of organisms much like us completely transforming a planet's uh, entire future. Mm. Um, however, it took them a half a billion years to do it, not about 150 years. So, right. yeah, um, humans are not only um, affecting climate, right, because that's obviously in front of most people's minds. Yeah. But they're also impacting uh, a, a cycle, uh, the phosphorus cycle that was first significantly impacted 370 million years ago. So um, uh, we seem to be rediscovering things that the plants did a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, and less than two centuries instead of a few million. Indeed, indeed. But, you know, people are aware of this system. So phosphorus is one of these weird nutrients that we, it's, there's a, there's a, another side of phosphorus, which is that there's not much of it on the planet, mm. frankly. If we would have, if we would have started on Mars instead, we'd be in better shape. It has twice as much phosphorus as we have. Oh. But sadly, we're stuck with this planet, right? This yeah. is where we evolve. Uh, and, there's just not much phosphorus. It's not like nitrogen. It's not in the air. So you can't, plants can't suck it out of the air. Yeah. Uh, and so we're left with only a little bit, but human beings, they do a really peculiar thing, which is that they mine this very precious resource, right? Phosphate rocks. Mm. They turn it into fertilizer. They apply it to fields. The minute it goes on a farm field, and a rainfall comes, it becomes a contaminant Ugh. because the phosphorus is phosphate. It causes these terrible alg alg algal blooms. Some of them are, are, are deadly, actually, that leak into our waterways and kill our plants. Um, and 
and our own human waste has a tremendous amount of phosphorus in it as well because we as human beings we eat you know plant matter and all that but we don't actually need much phosphorus uh, we, we use it for our, in our skeleton and our teeth but it's not we don't have a huge demand like plants do right um, and so we're treating this precious resource also as a contaminant in the environment figuring out ways to deal with it wow it's really just a kooky world that we live in that that we can't figure out and we haven't put a greater attention to how important it is to recycle the phosphate, limit its leakage from farm fields and recycle it in our own sewage. And I'm, I'm guessing that there are entire careers built around trying to understand this moving into the future, right? This isn't something that, oh, wow, we just realized this was happening. There, there are people working on this, I'm guessing. Well, it would be nice to guess that, Matt, but I, oh, no. <laughs> I, I promise you that it's only been in people's really radar for the last 10 years. Wow. Um, and, and that was from an increased awareness of the fact that uh, the, the resources were being limited. And the, price, the only reason why I drove this awareness is the prices went up, huh. of course, because the resource is more limited, right? right. That's always supply and demand. Um, and we have still have 8 billion people on our planet to feed. Yeah. Um, and they're fed by phosphorus. And we can't make more phosphorus. I mean, the cycle is robust. If you come back in a couple million years, there'll be just as much phosphorus as there used to be. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but that's a long pause button to push, right? Yeah. You can't pause for that long. And so we are, I think we're just waking up to this issue that we're using a valuable resource and flushing it literally down the toilet. Wow. Well, I mean, this is something I like to kind of bring to the forefront for all of my listeners all the time is that you don't necessarily have to be the botanist to be involved in these sorts of ideas and, and working groups to understand how we can be doing things better. I mean, if you've got a vested interest in geology, earth sciences, chemistry, economics, natural resources management, I mean, all of these can have a, a finger on that pulse from one angle or another, whatever your skill set or your specialty is there's ways of thinking about this and, and collaborating like you have with colleagues that bring other expertise to the table to help solve what are essentially global issues that, yeah, we don't have millions of years to figure out. Indeed. Yeah. I don't know an ash from an elm from a, from an <laughs> aster, frankly. Um, but, uh, I know how to dissolve them in the lab quite well, but I also nice. know colleagues who do know those quite well. And so this is why you'll see that most science is highly, highly collaborative because, um, not any given field has the answers for everything. So with that in mind, going into this particular area of research, has this changed the way you walk through a forest or walk through the woods and look at a moss and then look at a tree? I mean, I know maybe identifying isn't the strong point, but does this add in a whole new perspective on you as a geologist when it comes to looking at plants and their impact on the world? It does. I mean, it, it frankly does. Uh, when you, and, and I, it only came through, giving talks on this topic, uh, <laughs> that I realized that, wow, everything that I'm looking at outside would have not existed 380 million years ago. <laughs> and when I'm walking through forests, even urban forests here, I'm, I'm, I live in Indianapolis, urban forests in Indianapolis, I realize that everything here is this extremely complicated set of, of, of trees as well as roots, which have their own vibrant life. I mean, I'm no expert on roots, but uh, the trees can communicate with each other via roots through some some chemical uh, transmittal kind of sure. ways. But it's just wild. Yeah. And yes, it, it has blown my mind. Uh, you know, for those topics like communicating via roots, 
I'm only a spectator. I don't do research <laughs> on that, but I'm a very, I'm, I'm an avid spectator. Enthusiasm. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, for 370 some odd million years, plants have been affecting the world for better, for worse, no matter what perspective you take. Uh, and it's phenomenal that you and your colleagues were able to test these hypotheses and actually bring some light to what is essentially one of the world's great extinction events and how roots got involved. Indeed. It's probably it's going to be the last time roots are involved in extinction <laughs> event, first and last. I hope. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it, it, it was really, it was an exciting string of research, research to focus on. We're now, you know, like most research uh, now, we're, um, we're working on all the nuances, the uh. pieces that we couldn't solve the first time around. Um, and, and so, yeah, we still have active research in this area, but it's, it's fascinating. And I love connecting, um, the, the present to the past. And I love also connecting people to science. Excellent. Well, for those listening that want to keep a finger on the pulse of this work and all the other work that you and your colleagues do, where do you recommend they go looking? Um, well, you can certainly look at, at any one of the science news sites, you know, they, they keep, <laughs> they keep your prize on these kinds of things. Um, you can look for me. I am uh, very active on Twitter at Gabe Filippelli. Uh, and, um, and for as long as Twitter will survive, I have no idea, <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, <laughs> I'm active in, uh, on that. And, um, and I would say to listeners, and I think you have already a very uh, educated group of listeners, the world is just absolutely fascinating. And there's so many mysteries that we don't <laughs> know, but it's also a pretty precious place. Yeah. Right. Uh, these things, when I talk about trees slowly tra transforming a landscape over 10 million years, I, I've got to bring us back to the last 150 years, 150 years, not 10 million. Right. That's a lot of years if you count out yeah. all of the digits of 10 million and how much we've changed the planet. And it's really important to think that we're not the only ones on this globe. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we have forests, we have trees, we have birds, we have insects. Um, and, you know, we actually have agency to be stewards of all these things. And let's be better stewards. I agree, because whether we know it or not, whether we have the data or not, we know we need all of them, all of them working together to make our lives possible and as cozy and comfortable as they can be so that you and I can have these conversations digitally. Indeed, indeed. I fully embrace that. Yeah. Well, Dr. Filippelli, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing. And uh, thank you for talking to us about it. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. Incredible and sobering stuff. I thank Dr. Filippelli for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk to us about this research. And I hope you go over to indefensiveplants.com slash podcast and check out all of the relevant links I've added in the show notes. You can follow Dr. Filippelli on Twitter and keep up to speed with all of the research he and his colleagues are into. I, for one, very much look forward to all of the nuanced results that come out of this work. But who knew? Roots set the stage for a major mass extinction. But that is it for this week. Consider supporting the show, picking up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch, and of course, by becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. Check the show notes to get all of the links you need to do just that. I couldn't be doing it without everyone that supports the show each and every month. So with that, I will let you go. Until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone. <laughs>